0: WDBM, East Lansing.
1: 89FM. The Impact. And now,
0: Impact Exposure.
2: Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is
0: Impact Exposure. Exposure.
3: Good evening. Thank you for tuning in to Exposure on Impact 89FM. I am your host, Stephen Rich. Tonight, we address inequality issues our community faces today. The Boy Scouts of America's ongoing struggle with gay members and leaders.
2: who are now going to be caught in, in this three-year gap that you pointed out. Uh, where potentially they will be booted from the program uh, because they are gay.
3: Education inequalities that minority youths have faced for years.
4: And sort of the working class culture of boys that made schooling something that they really didn't associate with manhood or masculinity. Instead, working for a wage and bringing money home was far more important.
3: And racial issues facing students
5: and community members. These issues aren't just... They don't stay still. They're always, I guess, resurfacing. This is Exposure. Exposure.
3: Again, I am Stephen Rich, and this is Impact 89FM. You are listening to Exposure. Last year, the Boy Scouts of America changed a long-standing ban on gay members in the organization. Under the new rules, gay youths could now join the organization until adulthood. However, the BSA recently readdressed this new rule, stating that once these boys reach age 18, they cannot join as leaders. I spoke with Zach Walls, co-founder of the pro-gay organization Scouts for Equality, about this topic.
2: Uh, In some ways, the the organization starts with a speech that I gave to the Iowa House of Representatives back in 2011 about my experience as a straight man growing up with lesbian parents in the Midwest. And that was a video that racked up about 20 million hits on YouTube and gave me a national platform to start advocating for families like mine and for other children with LGBTQ parents. And that then segued uh, in in the spring of 2012 into the founding of Scouts for Equality after I delivered a petition started by Jennifer Terrell. Uh, Ms. Terrell was a lesbian dead mother from Ohio who was forced out of her son's Cub Scout troop, uh, uh, Cub Scout pack, excuse me, after they discovered that she was a lesbian woman. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the delivery of that petition put me in touch with another straight Eagle Scout uh, who was an insider at the BSA, and he and I... Uh, decided at the time was right to, to really create an organization of Eagle Scouts, of people with scouting experience that was dedicated to ending this policy, and who could talk about why, as scouts, we feel that scouting principles demand that we work for inclusion uh, of all people who are willing to follow the scout oath and law.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. And I mean, as you mentioned, you're the son of um, same-sex parents, so I'm sure that you've mm-hmm. personally been affected by this issue. Were you aware of
2: these kind of restrictions when
3: you were uh, growing up in scouts?
2: No, I wasn't. It was definitely an issue that was present, but, but something that I was not fully aware of until I was much older. When I was in the Cub Scouts still, uh, when I was in uh, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, uh, our Cub Scout pack was actually forced out of the elementary school where we all met because of the Dale decision in, in uh, the early 2000s that allowed the Boy Scouts to continue discriminating in our school district has a policy that says schools cannot engage in discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Mm. And therefore they were they chose to discontinue their association with the Boy Scouts. And so we had to find, excuse me, a new home, even though my moms were participating in the Cub Scout unit. So it was this really oh. frustrating policy where even if Cub Scout and Boy Scout units wanted to be inclusive and and were inclusive even, they were not able to access the resources available to them because of this national-level policy. Mm. And what what the the ultimate consequence of that was, unfortunately, is that the Boy Scouts have become heavily dependent on, on churches and faith institutions to operate the program and to sponsor units, whereas previously civic institutions like our elementary and junior high and high schools all played a leading role in sponsoring Boy Scout units. So that has now put the Boy Scouts in a very difficult position where they understand that the American population generally supports ending the ban on, on gay adults and maintaining the ban, or ending the ban, continuing to maintain the ended ban, excuse me, uh, on gay youth. Uh, however, their, their churches that are 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 a lot of the primary sponsors, including uh, Southern Baptist, the Catholic Church, and, and the Jesus Christ Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, all are, are all pretty clear when it comes to their position on homosexuality. Uh, so the, the Boy Scouts really are between a, a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Yeah. And one question
3: I had, you know, about the Scouts and the broader issue of LGBT rights, um, it mm-hmm. does really seem like there's a lot of progress being made nationally. You know, very recently, Oregon and Pennsylvania both approved um, same-sex marriage. So mm-hmm. how can you just um, elaborate more on how you think this lag is going to affect Boy Scouts?
2: Well I think that what we're seeing happen in Oregon and Pennsylvania and in the I believe it's up to 19 states now that recognize same-sex marriage is part of a much broader cultural shift that I think is really taking place at a, a, a pace that is both unprecedented and was very unexpected mm-hmm. that that is is just radically changing how most Americans view LGBT people. It was not so long ago. I mean it was barely 15 years when it, it seemed when the Boy Scouts ruling from the Supreme Court came down, when it seemed like we did not have a clear sense of how this country was going to react to you know, mainstream acceptance of LGBT people. Uh, And of course, what we've seen over the last 15 years is this very rapid change of pace and how you have not only an almost entire generation of people under the age of 35 who have embraced LGBT people in the broader community, but also increasingly you're seeing shifts among conservative and older and more Republican identifying people uh, in, in favor of equality as well. And so whether that's about marriage equality in the court's uh, or you know employment non-discrimination, or here in the Boy Scouts, we're seeing, I believe, this this tidal wave, so to speak, of change that is happening at, at a very, very fast rate. And, that's, and frankly, that, that poses some challenges as well uh, for the folks who are still adamant in their opposition. I think mm-hmm. it's very easy for them to feel overwhelmed or that things are beyond their control and that there's nothing that they can do. And anytime you're being put into that stressful situation where you feel like you don't have control, I entirely understand how people can feel like... Something is is something bad is happening and, and they want to slow it down or stop it, but what I think they fail to understand is the the devastation that this impact uh, the devastating impact that this ban can have on gay youth and on gay parents and and gay adults
4: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and and so i i it's, I think that it's part of a broader phenomenon uh but it's it's it's, it's going to i think take us all the way there mm mm-hmm.
3: Okay. Um, and you're listening to Impact Exposure, we're talking with Zach Walls, who's the founder of Scouts for Equality, which is just one of his many feats within the within support of the LGBT community. So shifting focus a little bit to uh progress that has been made within the Boy Scouts, uh last year they ended their um long standing ban on gay youth. Um however, homosexual leaders are still not allowed to be in the organization. But how much of an impact do you think this this initial change will have on the future of Boy Scouts?
0: It's a it's a
2: really great question. And I think that You know, when the Boy Scouts made the decision to end only the ban on gay youth last spring, that was something that was very difficult for us to get behind at first, because, in speaking personally, as the son of a same-sex couple, that this was a policy that would continue to ban and has continued to ban people like my parents. So bringing ourselves to endorse this first step forward as an important step forward, but understanding that there is still more work to do was, I think, the right decision. And it has, I think now set us up to show members of the BSA, leaders of the BSA, that including gay youth is not going to end the program, hell is not going to open up and and swallow the headquarters down in Grapevine, Texas. Uh, The program will continue to exist and and the values of scouting will not change. And I think that as you see more and more young gay men become Eagle Scouts and want to give back to their community, that you're going to see this, this building pressure internally within the organization. And continued external pressure from people like uh, the, the corporate America sponsors, uh, who are continuing to put pressure on the Boy Scouts uh, to finally finish the job and, and end the ban on, on gay adults.
3: Mm-hmm. And we, we actually saw, um, I believe it was uh, very recent, that uh, they shifted that open policy from eighteen year olds down, or from twenty one year olds down to eighteen year olds. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think that that three years is going to make a big difference? Or
2: well, well, I think that the most troubling aspect of that is that previously, last year, in the lead-up to the vote in May of 2013, when they voted to end the ban on gay youth, they promised their membership that youth who are gay and who can stay in the program until they're 21, and for your listeners, the traditional Boy Scouts program that everybody thinks of, you are considered a youth until you're 18 years old, but in some of the other programs that are associated with the Boy Scouts of America, like Venture Scouting and Sea Scouts, You're considered a a youth until you're 21 years old. They said explicitly that this policy will apply to youth until they're 21 Mm -hmm. in those programs. And now that they've shifted the membership requirements from youth down from 21 to 18, there are going to be a lot of people who thought that they were safe until they were 21, who were out and had no reason necessarily to be afraid of their immediate future, but who are now going to be caught in in this three-year gap that you pointed out. Uh, where potentially they will be booted from the program uh, because they are gay.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so we still don't have clarity from the Boy Scouts about whether or not this they're going to keep their promise and remain trustworthy, uh, which is the very first tenet of the Scout Law, mm-hmm. and protect youth until they're 21 years old. Or if they're going to go back on their word and apply that membership standard to these newly christened adults, even though uh, they were told that they were safe.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay, so and you know what? What is the next step for you guys? What's the next step for Scouts for Equality?
2: Well, yeah, obviously our our mission is to end the ban on on gay adults, and and we think that there are a number of ways that we can uh, make that happen. The first, and, and I think the most important aspect of our work, is to build up the elements within Scouting that we feel are inclusive. Uh, so making sure that we're supporting uh, the young men who are gay who are in the program, having their backs. Uh, making sure that they know that they have places that they can go to, resources that they can use uh, if and when they want to come out to their units. And we're also currently working to launch units within the Boy Scouts of America umbrella that are inclusive and that are non-discriminatory and that are willing to take a stand and and fight for those beliefs. Mm. Uh, The next thing that we're going to continue to do is continuing to apply a pressure to uh, BSA's corporate donors. Uh, We currently have a petition, uh, positioning Amazon.com to suspend its support to the the Boy Scouts of America through its Amazon Smile program uh, until the Boy Scouts of America end its discriminatory policy uh, against gay adults. And we've had some huge success uh, with these kinds of tactics in the past. And the final thing that we're continuing to work on uh, is offering resources for adults who do want to be more inclusive and want to be more aware of how they can support the youth and the the gay youth in their units and support even gay parents who have children in the program, kids who were in my position when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that those resources are available. We've heard that the BSA is potentially developing those kinds of uh, programs internally, but we want to make sure that there are third-party resources that individuals can can choose to use if they're so inclined
3: uh, as well. Okay, it sounds like you guys are going to be staying very busy. Um, Yeah, Absolutely. (laughs) And so before we go, uh, you know, like I said, you've been working incredibly hard in support of homosexual rights in scouting and, you know, even beyond that. Uh, But, you know, clearly this issue does remain controversial for a lot of people. So change has been very slow. Um, But can you Mm -hmm. tell us about an experience or maybe a specific reason that you've continued to, to push for this kind of change?
2: Yeah, I mean the the reason is simple. I, I I love scouting. I joined scouting when I was six years old. I was a little kindergartner who saw this poster that promised me the great outdoors, and I remember running home and and telling my mom that I wanted to join the Boy Scouts. And the and the policy was already in effect during the nineties, and so they were a little concerned at first, but they could see the enthusiasm on my face, and and they chose to give it a shot. And I'm I'm so glad they did. Earning my Eagle Scout award was a huge moment for me and for my family, and so. To to think that this experience, the values that were instilled in me, the the skills I learned, would be denied to anybody on the basis of sexual orientation, to me is a travesty. Uh, And I think that the longer this ban remains in place, the more difficult it's going to be for scouting to make the case to the American public that it is still a valuable part of America's moral foundation. And I think that it is and that it needs to be. And that this policy is, is what's standing in the way of the Boy Scouts truly living its mission. I mean, scouting is not about discrimination. It never has been, uh, and it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Scouting is about instilling leadership skills in young men, uh, creating community for you know, young boys to, to grow into adults, uh, and, and about exploring and, and learning how to protect the great outdoors. Uh, and so I think that the sooner the scouting program ends this, this short-sighted policy, uh, the sooner it will be able to actually get back to doing what Scouts are supposed to do.
3: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Zach.
2: Absolutely, Stephen. Thanks for having me.
3: My name is Stephen Rich, and you are listening to Exposure on Impact 89FM. Education has been an ongoing issue in equality for generations. For many, it seems that they will never have the right resources or opportunities to obtain even a high school diploma, much less a college degree. Professor Julia Grant of James Madison College at MSU has written extensively on poverty and racial inequalities surrounding education. She spoke with us about her newest book focusing on male youth education issues
4: the point of the book, which is a historical book, is that this has been more of a continuing trend. It's been something that has been happening, as I said, since the beginning of when schooling was made mandatory. And so um, I don't think there is one overarching trend, but there are some important, I think, cultural and economic trends. Uh, First of all, uh, certainly at the beginning of uh, compulsory education, a lot of boys if they did not finish high school or go on to college, certainly most people didn't go to college, could get good working-class jobs without going to college, without finishing high school. And so um, for them, especially in families where work was highly valued, work was preferred over going to school. Mm. So there was much in sort of the working-class culture of boys – that made schooling something that they really didn't associate with manhood or masculinity. Instead, working for a wage and bring money home was far more important. Now, obviously, today things have shifted and it's no longer possible to get those as possible to get those good working class jobs. And so um, as colleges made mandatory, I'm not sure that the culture of masculinity in uh, working class communities has quite come to Realize how important schooling is now, higher education as, and that those good working class jobs are no longer available. I mean, this is one part of the piece of the story that I'm telling.
1: Mm.
3: Yeah, because you, you, as you said, it's been an ongoing uh, dilemma. Is dilemma the right word for it?
4: Well, um, I'm not sure dilemma is the right word, but um, it's been an ongoing issue, I issue. would say. Okay. And <laughs> actually, I think that's really important point because. Um, A lot of the stories about the so-called boy problem or the boy crisis have traced it to um, women's liberation Mm -hmm. or um, the women's equality. And in fact, um, if you look at this historically, you'll see that that really isn't the case at all. Mm -hmm. Because what has happened is that women's inequality meant that they didn't go on to college, whereas upper class white males did. And so Now that we have women's equality, we're able to see more clearly a problem that had already existed. Mm. So boys were both at the top of the scale in terms of academic achievement in the past and at the bottom, whereas girls were in the middle. And now Mm. there are no barriers for girls, so they can go straight to the top. Mm. But we still have these languishing boys at the bottom.
3: Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that I, I was going to ask. Um, you said before that some people blame feminists for taking too much f- focus away from boys. Yes. So that's how you respond to that as saying that it wasn't taking away the focus, or necessarily, or well, Can you elaborate on that.
4: Yeah, sure. I I would say that really feminists um, really have nothing to do with this issue. Feminism has afforded opportunities for women that now are making us see the problems of boys. We couldn't really see them before because women were not able to ascend to the highest scales of leadership.
3: And so there's really nothing to compare it to?
4: Well, because they couldn't, men were at the top. So how we didn't really notice these boys at the bottom. Mm. Because women weren't at the top, men were at the top. So it was very difficult to actually see this issue of boys at the bottom. So I don't think that feminists really had much to do with it. Mm. But I do think that the fact that women now have no barriers to their advancement is contributing to us being able to see a problem that's been with us. For instance, just just to to clarify here, you know, boys in the top economic strata of society have never had an issue reaching the top, the pinnacle of achievement. So it really isn't just a gender problem, but it has to do with race and class as well.
3: Okay. Okay. And, um, you know, like I said, it, it's been an ongoing issue for generations. What was the biggest reason that you decided to address it now?
4: Um, I think the big, that's a really good question. Um, and I think it ties back to what I've been saying is that with with the press for, for instance, everyone to get a higher, uh, higher education to become college graduates, or at least most of us, um, we're starting to notice these gaps. These gender gaps are pretty pressing. I mean, we have... About a 56% to 44% um, numbers of, uh, 44% of uh, boys are in college as opposed to about 56% of girls. So that's a pretty striking gap to see. Uh, We have um, very disproportionate percentages for especially African-American and Latino males in terms of their dropout rates, in terms of their incarceration statistics, in terms of their Um, college graduation statistics, um, only about 34 percent of black college grads are males. Um, So there's a really big gap there. And I I think that um, noticing these gaps and then looking at the historical record. So basically what I was doing was sitting in the archives, reading these stories of boys during the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and then noticing how similar their stories were these immigrant youth mm-hmm. to some of the youth of today so that was really striking for me and um the reason i wanted to both look at this historically and connect it to what's going on today
3: and there has been you know some different initiatives to address issues like this like uh, my brother's keeper i know is a big one that you've talked about before um do you think that that does enough to help or does does it help Um, These boys in this situation?
4: It's a rather amorphous initiative in the sense that it is a collaboration of different nonprofits uh, working together, um, mainly funded by private donations. I think the fact that President Obama is drawing attention to the issue is certainly important and encouraging people to get started on this issue. He just the same year also um, started an initiative for blacks in education. So I think those two initiatives – Really tied together. Um, But I think drawing attention, um, devoting resources uh, to these issues are very important. But it's very difficult to tell um, whether it's going to have an impact. And also, uh, what's good, what's the best thing about the initiative is it's going to start getting research on what works. And I think that's really important because I think in the past and in the present, too many of these initiatives for boys have been based on, not on facts, but just on common sense, boys will be boys kind of ideas. Um, And I don't think we really know enough about what works.
3: Mm. And uh, do do you see this issue continuing or, yeah, do you see this issue continuing into higher education? Is this something that MSU needs to be aware for its own students?
4: Yeah, it's definitely a, a very large issue for higher education, given I already cited the fact that 44% of college students were male nationally as of 2010, and that uh, the numbers of uh, black males in college are very low in comparison to their female counterparts. So obviously it's it's a huge issue getting kids out of high school and into higher ed in the first place, and then retaining them Um we have a huge retention problem um, on our college campuses, especially for low-income and underserved um, minority youth. And um, and this is also the case with males who are less likely to complete college than their female counterparts. So I think we do need to direct attention and resources to this group, because especially now, where students are taking out a lot of debt and tuitions are raising um, not to get through college or not even to get into college, is a big problem, but yeah, I think that um, I think that this is something that universities need to look at.
3: Is there any specific ways that you'd like to see Michigan State address it, or any universities in particular addressing it?
4: Um, I think that uh, we just need to pour more resources and more energy into our retention programs for at-risk groups, um, and that needs to be done in a variety of ways, whether it be you know. I wouldn't say remedial programs, but, you know, um, programs that address academic, emotional, social, social, and cultural needs, but also financially and help these students to be able to pay throughout the four years of mm-hmm. their college education, which is one of the main reasons that kids drop out. In high school, um, there are a number of organizations uh, that are trying to encourage kids to apply College. One is uh, the Michigan College Access Network, which sends advisors into colleges uh, to help kids, both boys and girls. But um, notably, I was talking to a few of these young people the other day, and they were saying that even in white rural areas, there's quite uh, a big resistance to the idea that um, college will help uh, advance people's employment prospects. So we need to address these issues with boys and with their communities and families.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being with us today. on Impact 89FM. I am your host, Steven Rich. Tonight on the show, we're highlighting different equality issues in their many form. Earlier this year, MSU and other universities were hit by a social media campaign. The Twitter campaign, BBMSU, or Being Black at MSU, highlighted the struggles and achievements that black students were facing every day at the university. In order to understand the impact and extent of this campaign, as well as address a few other topics, I was joined by a panel of students and a professor to discuss the state of racial equality at MSU.
5: We have a great panel here today. Um, I'm going to let them go across and introduce themselves. Uh, My name is Patrick Harris. I am a senior here now at Michigan State. Uh, I'm studying elementary education, and I'm from Southfield, Michigan. All right. My name is Tyler Clifford. I'm a senior journalism major here at Michigan State University.
6: uh, From Southfield, Michigan.
0: My name is Brittany Banks. I am a senior here now at Michigan State University. Uh, I am a psychology major and economics minor, and I am from Port Huron, Michigan.
1: And I'm Kiki Adozi. I'm the director of African American and African Studies. I'm also a professor of international relations and African affairs at James Madison College.
3: All right. One of the first things I wanted to start with is this year marks the 25th anniversary of the eight-day study-in by black students at MSU. Um, It was a protest staged in order to draw attention to issues of racial discrimination at Michigan State. So to start to kind of reflect on that, what sort of issues drove students to start this protest?
1: Well, you know, I I just think there are three key issues that most students um, are demanding. One is that we should increase the enrollment of black students at MSU. Um, enrollment is low. It's it's, it's, it's really low. And, um, you know, we wanted more uh, black student presence. Mm-hmm. Um, another issue was uh, to increase um, and improve the services to black students uh, to help retain them. Our retention um, rates are really low uh, for black students. And we want um, services to help students to facilitate their time to degree. Um, our time to degree graduation rates are, you know, really low. Um, low and um, students wanted services to help them um, attain these issues. And finally, um, you know big issue is to foster um, a better climate of diversity and inclusion for black students on campus. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a sort of campus um, that is free of racial incidents. Um, A campus that has um, much more faculty, black faculty, um, to sort of um, mentor and guide students. And um, uh, the increase of um, services to uh, black students, cultural services and academic services. Mm -hmm. So I think those are the three big issues that... Uh, were brought up um, a few years ago when students um, protested a uh, greater black presence at MSU.
3: And do you still see a lot of those issues popping up today? Has MSU done a, a good job of addressing them, or where do, where do we need to see more work?
1: Well, I'd like the students to sort of speak to that, and then I'll come back to it. How about that?
6: <laughs> yeah, I was going to um, bring it up, uh, take it back to the to the study in back in 1989 um, well, there wasn't really anything that really sparked a reason for it to happen. Um, it, was, it was more so just issues that students on campus felt that's been going on for a long time, and it's time to do something about it. Um, so the study in was primarily, as Professor Dozier said, um, it, was to, for the, it was to force the administration to address the racial issues on campus. And I, this wasn't just about black people either, honestly. Um, they were talking about just racism in general. Mm-hmm. But the Black Student Alliance did uh, lead this protest in 1989, where they sat in the administration building um, in May, um. So this was around the end of the school year, almost. So they felt that something needs to be done, where administration needs to re- needed to respond now, as opposed to wait till the summertime when everybody forgot about it and then we start a whole new school year once again and nobody cared about the issues mm-hmm. no more. So um, they it, it really uh, the city and really came out of just the spirit of the moment, just saying hey, something needs to be done now, pretty much. Um. So they wanted to make a statement and they wanted to get a, wanted to get a response at that moment. Um, and doing the study in, uh, a lot of black students just filled in the, the hallway of the administration building, and you know nobody was able to get into work to get into to the different floors on in the building in order to carry out business on Michigan State's campus. And so that's something that would it would eventually force administration to say, hey, okay, something needs to be done now. And that's where it, uh, where it led to. Um, there was 22 demands that were presented, I believe 22 or 23, somewhere in that ballpark. They presented different demands that address whether it was racist, racial issues on campus, student enrollment, um, the diversity of, of faculty on campus, as well as, you know, student housing on campus as well and in the nearby area as well. Because once upon a time, um, this wasn't during the 80s still, but once upon a time, stud- black students couldn't even live in East Lansing. They couldn't live on campus either. And so after so over the over the years, it's always been some type of protesting or some type of demonstrations to help address those issues that were going on on campus to make sure this was a more diverse community and that we were addressing the issues of all students on campus. Mm -hmm.
5: Yes. And I would guess just to answer your question, um, these issues aren't just, you know, they don't stay still. They're always I guess resurfacing. Um, And so back in 2011, my freshman year, um, I was really caught off guard when um, there was, you see, so you know how people had like the white erase boards on their doors. And so someone had put, um, no Nick, no niggers, please on mm. the girl's door. And, and a smiley face at the end too. And wow. a smiley face <laughs> at, at the end for, you know, for good things. And, um, and so that really sparked, um, again, another big movement. And as a freshman, you know, I was really just really, like I said, taken off guard and I I didn't really know how to expect it because you come here during AOP and everybody's nice and friendly and everybody's just like, hello, you know, and, and then you get this kind of understanding or this like presence of what you think MSU is. And then the school year starts in, you know, me coming from what I believe is a predominantly black neighborhood. You really don't, I guess, encounter. I didn't really inc- encounter racism from other racism uh, for other races. And so to come here, I guess, be faced with that. Um, It was really shocking.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: I think one of the biggest shocks, and it still continues to be one of the biggest shocks for me here on campus, is the residential halls. Um, I didn't personally realize it my freshman year because I guess it was more diverse or more mixed than some of my other experiences. Um, But being an Emerald student leader in Holden Hall... Um, I really saw how divided campus truly is um, in terms of, like, racial and ethnic backgrounds. Um, So, like, for example, like here in Holden, uh, the demographic, I believe, is, like, on West Holden is pretty much majority camp students and HEP students. And then there's a mix of, like, upperclassmen, but they're still um, predominantly black. And so um, coming from a town where I would say it was pretty much racially divided just amongst um, black and white To be engaged with other cultures and other people in my classrooms, I didn't know how to interact with them. And so by having it be the same as my hometown and my living space, it wasn't really teaching me or allowing me to grow and interact with these people um, that I had to interact with in class.
1: So just to sort of connect your first two questions to each other, um, you know, has there been improvements um, since the 1989 demands? Um, No, I think there have been. Um, uh, One of the outcomes um, of the 1989 protests was um, the establishment of um, a disciplinary presence in uh, the study of African-American studies. And Mm -hmm. so the program in African-American studies was founded as a result of that. Um, you know there were uh, improvements uh, dedicated strategic improvements to student services um, and especially to student services around sort of um, multicultural issues um, but you know I think that the uh, what sort of stays the same and and I wouldn't say same the stays the same, I'd, I'd say um, there have been improvements in the campus climate, but there's also been some challenges that have um, been brought about as a result of those improvements. And so um, I, I've i tried to sort of sort out what are the challenges. Um, I, I think about the three years ago when students, again, black students organized by the Black Student um, Union um, sort of protested again around the very issues that... Um, uh, the students have talked about, um, specifically climate issues, um, we've tried to understand what sort of is going on, and um, I think we've sort of um, boiled it down to a, a new racism. Um, a new racism, and what is that? Um, it's, it's just more subtle, you know, sort of race relations um, um, and racial conflict. Um, it's a move from sort of affirmative action um, sort of uh, black and white you know uh, racism to a sort of internationalization of diversity um, which comes with new kinds of tensions and so um, a lot of these racial incidents um, are occurring because of a new sort of um, ignorance of um racially sensitive issues in the U.S. um, on the one hand, and maybe um, also changes in Michigan State University's um, affirmative action laws. Proposition 2, for example, did a big blow uh, to enrollments um, for students, black students um, at MSU, and to what extent that sort of opened up a new climate of intolerance um, becomes the question. And so um, I think the climate issues are... Uh, still very much um, up in the air, and I think um, this is what uh, black students that I speak to sort of complain about.
3: Mm-hmm. And how do you the the climate issues do seem very difficult to address? Is it wa- raising awareness with students? How do you address an issue like that? Because, like you said, it is it, it's subtle.
1: Yeah.
6: One one thing <clears throat> one thing that you <clears throat> that needs to be done is these type of things need to continue to happen mm-hmm. um like i said like i said before uh the reason why the sit-in occurred in 1989 was because they didn't want people to forget and so of course you need to keep redoing stuff and keep bringing up these issues again to make sure it's fresh in people's mind so they don't forget that these things are still going on around us like professor Dozy said a lot of racial racial things happen is a little more subtle now you know mm-hmm. they happen back back door you know i guess you can kind of comment on donald sterling his issue you know it, in order mm-hmm. to find out you had to be caught almost you, mm-hmm. gotta be, you had to be caught being racist you because mm-hmm. it's not no more just oh he's a racist look all these racists around me you know you right. have to be caught mm-hmm. being being a racist now um so yeah things have gotten better but a lot more stuff happens goes on back door now so it's, it's harder to try to find or try to properly address these issues that, that are happening but um nonetheless though i i would say things have been getting better to answer your question again since 1989 sit-in because one thing i've 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 always commented on uh, recently since I've learned a few months ago um, the retention rate, the graduation rate for African-Americans um, on campus back in 1989, I believe, was, was somewhere around like 35 or 36 percent. Um, within six years, black students were graduating within six years at a 39 percent rate, um, th- somewhere in the 30s. Uh, but today that number is up to 56 percent. And so once again, we have to keep addressing this issue. we got to keep addressing how can we. How can we address this issue to make sure that more students are graduating to get that number up to 100 percent eventually? Mm-hmm. And if you stop talking, it's not going to it's not going to change. It's, if anything, it's going to get worse. So, of course, our goal is to keep having these conversations, to keep people aware about what's going on around us. That's so we can figure out the new way to address the, the modern day issues we have, because today the issues that a lot of black students are facing today, we, we share a lot of the same issues they faced in the 80s, 70s, 60s. But of course, at the same time, it's, it's a new generation as well, especially with social media you know, all types of different technologies that have that has have different ways of mobilizing mm-hmm. our views and things like that. So we have to use new tools in order to to address the issues that we're dealing with.
3: Yeah. And going off of social media, one thing um, last year that um, I thought was pretty cool that happened not only at Michigan State, but a lot of different universities was the hashtag being black at your university for Michigan State. It was being black at MSU. Um, and we saw a range of different tweets, um, everything from. Uh, You know, addressing issues like saying, uh, oh, we go here when walking into a Caucasian house party. And then there were some that were, you know, feeling um, more uplifting, like setting an example as a first generation college student. And I think that did a really good job of highlighting that every single student runs in these issues. Um, But what do you guys, what inspired that trend? Do you guys know any background of what brought that to Michigan State? I can can comment comment on that myself. Uh, Last
6: year, I was the president of the Black School Alliance here on campus, um, the same organization that led the 1989 sit-in. And we actually got the inspiration from the University of Michigan's Black Student Union. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had built, built a relationship with their Black Student Union there um, during first semester because the the, the the tweet the tweet thing um, the Twitter thing happened second semester. Um, first semester we was building a, a good uh, a good relationship with the BSU over at U of M. We, had, we was passing on ideas about how we can address issues going on on campus and things like that. We invited each other to different events that we had going on, on our, going on on our campuses. And um in one random day we just saw them doing their BBU of M hashtag thing and talking about the issues they're facing at U of M. And in the position that I was in, I said, This needs to happen here as well. Um it's no point it's no reason why we should be silenced as well, you know. And and so I remember I sent out one tweet and I told everybody to retweet it so everybody can see it and everybody could join in on it. And sure, about five minutes after that, the tweet started rolling in. Mm-hmm. Um and people were expressing their feelings. And I told them, I said, don't just tweet all bad things. Tweet anything, whether it's good, bad, okay things. What are the issues that you face or what are the good good experiences that you had on campus? And let other people know about it. And that's where that came from. And people were able to express some jokes at times. Some people expressed deep feelings about certain things. And you got a, a range of stuff, of, of um, emotions going through those tweets. Mm-hmm. And it was a way for us to, I guess you could say, document how people are feeling as well, in a sense.
3: Yeah, and what I thought was great about it is it not only captured um, how people feel in just their day-to-day, but also their education, just every aspect of Michigan State life was really covered in that. So did did you guys participate in that at all?
0: Yes. um, I retweeted a lot, Um, definitely. I thought it was really cool. I I was almost like at a loss of words, so I didn't really want to say much. I don't believe I... I tweeted anything, but I just wanted to take in, um, what was happening because I thought the hashtag was a beautiful way. Um, and not only like something subtle, but social media has gained so much traction and so much power, especially, um, in the hands of young people. And so I thought it was really beautiful and really inspiring to see so many people hash, you know, following the hashtag. And even after like the big day when it broke out, as Tyler mentioned, like, there were still other events that happened in the black mm-hmm. community such as um, BSA's uh, mr and black mr. and mrs black uh, MSU pageant like there were still hashtags popping up at different mm-hmm. things so I thought it was really cool um, and I also think that it, it was really important to um, find a different way to be activists for young people because I think some of our um, some of the issues that we face um, as we're, as we have mm-hmm. mentioned already are backdoor and I think that the reason that they become backdoor is because we live in an era of colorblindness. Um, and I think there's a lot of failure to acknowledge the, um, the existence of white supremacy still, um, and that these things still happen. I think, uh, the Trayvon Martin case, for example, woke us up and -hmm. and let us know that these things are very well happening. Um, and, and they're not subtle. Some are, but most aren't. That's a, that's a blatant offense. And so I think things like this, um, a good way to bring unity and solidarity as tyler mentioned uh, u of m was involved osu was involved just different black student alliances and unions coming together um and how powerful is that as a message as a whole look at all these different communities no matter the makeup no matter where they come from the background they can come together and do something that's really powerful so i was really really blown away
6: Mm -hmm. it's a did you want to say something? Oh no, go 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 go. And just a comment on. <laughs> so I don't want to be speaking too much, but I wanted to really comment on what Brittany said um, about how, with even with the Twitter thing, it happened at different universities. Um, that's that's how it happens. It has, has been happening historically. Even with 1989, it wasn't only MSU having a sit-in. Wayne State University had a sit-in in their administration office for 12 days. Mm-hmm. Um, at Ferris State University, they had a sit-in for four days. So oftentimes, you'll see different protests kicking up everywhere. You know, everyone wants to get involved, and that's kind of what happened with us as well. And I think what the hashtag thing showed me, what I learned from it a lot was how social media is your new tool for for activism. Um, every generation, when they protest, they're using some new way of of mobilizing their voice, mobilizing their issues. And one way that the civil rights movement was so successful was because of television. Uh, before television, you just had newspapers, and people were only seeing you know written articles about racist racial incidents and stuff like that going on in America, and it was easy to easy to put that to the side. But once people were, were able to visualize this racism back in the 60s and they, they saw all types of you know uh, marches and things like that, they were able to to visualize how people were being treated in America. And they realized that something needed to be done about it then. And I think now today, social media is a new way to try to address those issues as well and try to change um, the climate in different ways as opposed to just doing the same old tools that's always been going on. So not saying that we can't use the old tools of of of, of uh, activism, saying not to march no more, not to do this no more, not to do that no more, but you do want to still find new ways to kind of, to I guess yeah, just find new ways to to uh, push your your forward and keep it going
5: and keeping it strong in in, the, in a new age. So, mm-hmm. just and,
1: uh, oh, go ahead. Go uh, ahead.
5: Oh, okay, I was gonna say <laughs> that I think that the best part about this generation too is that we have those old tools, and so yes, we are going to still be marching. Yes, we are going to be on your television. Now we're going to be on your social media feeds. And as generations continue to come, we are going to continue finding new ways. And so it's becoming less and less possible for you to get away with your racism and all different kinds of prejudices that are happening um, in our world today. And so we are continuing, like continuously um, finding new ways to address them. And then that's why I love so much about, you know, my generation is that we are using all those tools. Mm-hmm.
1: And just to leverage all the wonderful things that I think BSU students have just said about hashtag uh, BSMSU um, is uh, from an administrative and faculty perspective that um, hashtag style sort of uh, communicators for the huge, um, great um higher educational institution like a big university uh, that wants to be diverse. Um, As I was walking into your studio, I saw this great illustration of democracy. You know, it's a way for um, administrators, uh, faculty and students to connect. Social media is that vehicle to connect on issues of diversity. And so, um, the the sort of variance in responses to hashtag um, MSU was was fantastic because it gave uh, faculty and administrators of diverse um, um, identities themselves a a sort of um, purview into, you know, the minds um, of uh, young people, our students, and especially into um, the issues that we want to address issues of diversity and inclusion mm-hmm.
3: yeah and uh with that trend i felt like one of the biggest things that they wanted to do is not only raise awareness but um you know start to create an impact have you guys seen any changes because of just a twitter campaign have you seen a, a long standing impact up because of the hashtag
5: um i think that i've seen a lot more conversation and i think that that is one thing that we don't really acknowledge as an impact or something that we acknowledge as you know as a concrete you know, thing. Um, But conversation is very important. And to see uh, see students um, engaging with one another on issues of race and other kinds of inequalities, I think is a big thing because it all starts with, with education. And, you know, our problems don't start when we enter the university. A lot of them start from back home. And so we bring ourselves and our identities and we bring our biases to the university and we're all, you know, packed together in this one environment. So and then we're forced to interact and we have these problems and people don't want to talk about it. They just want to sit back and, and let things uh, kind of go. And so to see students um, having social media as a, well, using social media as a tool uh, to begin a conversation, I think is one of the biggest impacts that I've seen. Mm-hmm.
0: I also think it was really interesting. I don't know if there was a correlation between the hashtag and what happened, but there was an article um, that ASMSU proposed um, the possibility of having a one credit diversity course um, that would uh, be required for incoming freshman students. And so just the fact that it caught the attention, I don't know the correlation, but I'm assuming and hoping (laughs) that it did. Um, Just the awareness that it's not only students that need to be aware, but faculty are taking note of what What best needs, what best can meet the needs of the students? And I think that should always be the goal of the university. And so whether or not this course ever happens, I think the fact that it was up for debate and it was a published article online, I think, was so powerful and so special.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, that course is going to happen. It's not going to be a one credit course. It's going to be a three credit course. And it's going to be called uh, Race and, and Community from Global no, From Local to Global Perspective. Get it. And it's offered <laughs> wow. by the African American wow. and African Studies. Wow. That's
5: great. <laughs> There's a clapping button. I will push that. <laughs> class 100. Okay, no
1: advocates. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, well, in, I, th- I think we've covered this a lot, but just kind of to focus on it a little bit more, um, one thing I think that is great about MSU is that it really gives uh, a, just a range of community to really highlight Issues surrounding a range of topics, one of them being racial equality. What do you think it is about the college atmosphere that helps promote this type of discussion?
6: I think what, this is about, what, what it's about. What about here, um, you you living here on, on a campus like MSU, where you got people coming from all over the country, all over the world, here living next door to you. That's an experience you may never get in your life. Um, coming from my my, just seeing how the world is still split up. We're still segregated in all types of ways everybody come comes from pretty much a predominantly one, one predominant race, uh, in the area. Like I come from Southfield, Michigan is probably predominantly, predominantly black. Um, right next door to me is Detroit It's predominantly black. If you go out a little bit more West to Farmington Hills, it's predominantly white. Mm-hmm. And then the the more North or more West you West you, you go, it's predominantly white everywhere you're going. So we, we don't, we're not integrated still in the world, even though we like to think we are, we're not. So once again, as Patrick mentioned before, once we come from these different communities at home all the time, and we have our different prejudices and our different views of different races in the world. We bring those here to campus with us, and once once we're here in this small area, this small space. Of course, issues campus is big, but compared to the rest of the world, when you have thousands of different t- t- groups of people represented represented right next to you, you realize how serious these these issues are. And with us be- being in college alone, you have people who want to ha- who are very ambitious. And when you have all these ambitions and passions going on in one small area, it sparks some type of movement. It sparks some type of change, some type of difference. And we all come to, we come to this university and we learn a lot before we leave. And even if you're just here for a week, a, a semester or a year, you're going to learn something about a different group of people, whether you like it or not. It's mm-hmm. hard to get away from. And so um, being on a, in a university, you know, you have some of, some of the, you know, the most brightest people you have here in MSU or U of M. Or some of the top universities, you have some of the bri- some, some of the brightest people coming together, and when all those bright minds are all together, they're gonna they're gonna fight for what they believe in. They're gonna fight to, to make some type of change or something. So that's why I think being at a at a university is um is why you see these type of changes or these type of protests and things going on so often.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: For me, um, being a resident of Michigan my whole life and knowing that Michigan is one of the most racially segregated states uh, in our country, um, I think what really opened my eyes, um, more, more so than any textbook, more so than any class I've ever taken here, was just the genuine dialogue and the conversations that I got to, um, got to have with different students that looked like me, that didn't look like me. Um, and I think some of the most powerful knowledge that we often forget time to time Uh, comes from those interactions, and in in that uh, dialogue with others, you learn so much about where they come from, their background, their experiences, their identity, what makes them who they are, and what brought them here. And so um, I think before coming here, I wouldn't have considered myself someone who would advocate for social change, but um, getting to know different people here on the university and seeing that there is the commonality that is humanity, Um, I believe in that. And that's something that I'm willing to fight for, whether it be for people that look like myself, whether it be for people that don't look like myself. And so I think that's something that the university provides you um, and whether or not you take it, um, it's not always there as something you have to do. A lot of the times it's a choice. And so I think by my choice, um, I can only speak for myself, but my choice to engage um, with other people has really taught me um, that, that change can really happen through solidarity and unity. Mm.
1: So it's implicit in your question is um, that we shouldn't personalize sort of um, uh, race protests by students at MSU because, um, as Tyler has mentioned and others have mentioned, that um, there's been um, problematic racial climates in other universities as well, right? You know, Wayne State, um, Michigan State, um, uh, University of Michigan... Mm-hmm. <laughs> And Michigan State. But basically in the 60s and 70s and 80s, um, you know, sort of student protests around race and sort of inclusion and diversity were sort of the ongoing thing all the time. And so, you know, what's going on here? Um, this is sort of reflective of um, the racialistic um, sort of history of our state and society, right? And, and we have to come to terms with it, that race is an intractable and um, embedded you know, structure of US politics and society. And it's unraveling as we celebrate um, um, 6050, which is the twin civil rights um, acts of Brown v. Board and um, the 1964 um, Civil Rights Act. As we we, we celebrate uh, these kinds of acts, we are also sort of engaging in a dialogue about uh, racialistic structures and their legacies uh, today, and how they sort of proliferate uh, into uh, ranges of communities, including the campus community. Mm-hmm. And so, what's happening at MSU as well is uh, the manifestations and illustrations of uh, racialistic structures um, in this community, on campus community, and we're all sort of trying to work it all out. Mm-hmm. So um, it's nothing to be sort of ashamed of. It's something to, for universities to embrace and address, you know, as leading institutions um, in and as, as part of a civil society uh, that engages. I, I think University of Michigan, at least at one time, uh, being at the forefront of the um, affirmative action debates um, at the Supreme Court. Being at the forefront of it, um, claimed Bollinger claimed, who was the president at the time, that um, it was the goal of a great university, like the University of Michigan and like Michigan State University, to uh, engage these issues at the helm of U.S. politics, and that's why they went to the Supreme Court on these issues. So we also we need to embrace, you know, these kinds of issues, not be ashamed of them, not shy away sort of engage them, um, engage our students, engage our faculty um, around these issues.
3: Mm-hmm. And we are actually running out of time. So before we go, I do just want to um, kind of send off on an a uplifting note. Um, but can you guys think of a time
5: that you felt empowered here at Michigan State? Um, well, I think one time I felt inspired. Um, well, I just participated in the Mr. and Miss Black MSU pageant. Um, and so working closely with the Black Student Alliance and my peers, um, it really helped me to learn a lot about myself and learn a lot about my people and my history and being able to share my... Well, giving me the courage to share my experience in order to um, inspire others. And so I think that that was a really, really cool time for me.
6: Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I've had plenty of times where I've been inspired on campus, but I think just... Every day going to class and just knowing that, I don't know, for one, being the only black student in a, in a lot of my classes at times, I feel empowered because I know I'm representing, representing my whole race. I know that all eyes are on me, and whatever I do is going to be a reflection of the black race. And so that kind of just helps inspire me that I need to do the best I can at all times um, because not only for, for myself because I want others to view me in a good, positive light, I want people to understand that all black people are not this, this same Creature you see on TV all the time that that a lot of times are they're displayed to be as um or they're not I'm not the same gang banger banger or same shooter that, shooter that you just read about in, the, in yesterday's paper, um so I I just think the a lot of times the the downfalls that we do have I think sometimes inspires not just me myself but a lot of students to do better because they don't want to continue to live in that same exact that same way or same atmosphere they once were in, mm-hmm. so um I think that's one thing that that inspires me I guess negative things kind of inspire you in a, in a sense as well, too. So that's mm-hmm. what inspired me.
1: And I'm inspired by, you know, just listening to these students uh, <laughs> <laughs> speaking truth to it, the power and, you know, and the right kind of power. Um, I, I'm inspired by um, President Simon's recognition of diversity on campus. Um, in many um, ways, she has done so. She uh, provides awards for diversity and inclusion. And uh, many of the subjects who have Received those awards are um, students like this, you know, uh, and faculty who have, you know, done their best to um, engage in, um, you know, this important struggle.
3: Well, I want to thank you guys so much for being here with us today. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Thank you. You're listening to
0: Impact Exposure. here Th- thanks again
2: man it was good wait time. you
3: were uh you were hitting it pretty hard tonight are, are you good to drive heck yeah
2: i am amazing at driving
3: yeah man you sure i mean i can call a cab or we fine. can uh, we can get
0: somebody to take you home yeah, you know? yeah don't worry i'm good
2: okay uh hey text me when you get back
0: okay stop right there this is stupid he's drunk friends don't let friends drink and drive ever
6: a message from 88.9 the impact
0: For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to The Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
2: Friday nights from 8 until 10 p.m., The Impact Flashback is your retro music alternative, playing your old favorites from the 70s,
4: 80s, and 90s. Only on
2: Impact
1: Primetime.
6: In a world where radio was repetitive and mundane, In a time when FM is plagued by the same 15 songs, an army of new songs are called to battle, and only the strongest survive. Every Sunday night from 8 till
3: 10, sit or spin,
6: only on
0: Impact 89FM.
3: Now back to
0: Impact Exposure.
3: Before we go tonight, I wanted to remind our listeners one more time that you can soon hear more often from two of tonight's panelists on Impact 89 FM. Patrick and Brittany will be hosting a new show on the station focusing on social justice news and issues locally and globally starting later this month. Thank you for joining us tonight. Special thanks to station manager Gabriela Saldivia and general manager Ed Glazer. Tonight's show and all other exposure shows can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I'm Stephen Rich, and you have been listening to Impact Exposure 89FM.